You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 153 is Steve Kilby, best known for his work with The Church, an Australian band with whom he has released 17 albums since 1980. He's also released 13 solo albums and has many side projects, including Kilby Kennedy, with whom he's released 11 albums. All in all, Wikipedia tells me that as of 2020, he has a thousand original songs registered with the Australian Copyright Agency. You're right now listening to his biggest hit, perhaps, Under the Milky Way by the church from 1988's Starfish. He's just released a massive double solo album called The Hall of Counterfeits. We'll talk about Love Song Yet to Be Named, the closing track from that. And look to the opening track from the last church album to date, Man, Woman, Life, Death, Infinity from 2017. The song is Another Century. And then look all the way back to the church's first album, 1981's Of Skins and Heart. Is This Where You Live is the song. We'll close by listening to the title track from Sidney Rococo, his 2018 solo album. For more information, see thechurchband.net and thetimebeing.com. For more about this podcast, check nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support us, you can do so either through patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic or new right now. Apple Podcast listeners can sign up for a paid subscription directly through Apple Podcasts, which will yield ad-free episodes and other content for three different podcasts that I create. I will have played a little of Under the Milky Way from Starfish 1988, just to orient folks, but we're going to get very quickly to the newest album, The Hall of Counterfeits. Can you say a little about where you're at? I'm not going to make you go through the long journey from Starfish to here, but if you want to say a little about how this relates to what folks are used to hearing from you before we hear the song. I started playing my guitar, my acoustic guitar a lot, as opposed to my bass guitar. I started writing a lot of songs. The songs I was writing, I wanted to record, and I went up to a studio about an hour away out of Sydney, up north. I really liked the guy working there who became the co-producer. And some players I knew drifted in. We made a couple of other albums in various permutations, and eventually I put them all together to do this. And I wanted to make, forgive my modesty, a sprawling masterpiece. (laughs) I wanted to make one of those records like just the sheer audacity of someone doing it with that many songs. I was telling a guy yesterday that this is exactly what I want. I wanted the music to be like nature. I want it to be like a tangled forest of sound. There's no rhyme or reason. Humans aren't intruding on this with computers and quantizing and cutting bits up and taking the best bit. This is actually musicians playing the first or second take. And then I also wanted exotic instruments. And these guys, exotic instruments are them. They have instruments I've never even heard of or seen before, Turkish instruments, and Swedish, Scandinavian, Celtic instruments, ancient instruments, medieval instruments, they have them, as well as the ability, Roger, especially on the keyboards, not only an amazing piano player and organist, but he plays cello. So a lot of the Hall of Counterfeits, a lot of the stuff I really love is the cello. So I want to make a sprawling masterpiece. I wrote half of it on my own at home, and the other half is jammed or written with the players, the winged heels, and then I would put sort of words and melody on top. So my intention was to make one of those old-fashioned albums. You could have an intoxicant of your choice or not, put the headphones on and be immersed in another world just for the sake of it. That's all it exists to do is to give you this deep musical 
sort of mystery tour. And with each song, I sing in a different voice. I'm a different character. It's millions of different me's channeling other people, whether imagined or real or past lives or just things I'm snatching out of the universe or composites of things I've read and heard and seen. It's all mixed up. And it's like, you don't have to worry about it. All you've got to do is have a listen. It's supposed to be fun and supposed to be escapism. So we're going to play in a second here the last song on the album, the 23rd song on the album, partially just to show you that I did get to the end, but (laughs) it's actually sort of one of the more conservative pieces on here. In in other words, it's not a one-minute strange historical instrument. It is a like full regular church-length song with some of your trademark melodies and things, but definitely this party thing that's going on at the end. Can you say just a little about the song before we hear it, and then we'll talk more in detail about it? It's really hard to say what this song is about. It's not about anything. It alludes to the Garden of Eden, and we are unsure who the singer is, who, what it's all about, but it's sort of, it has that feeling. And then at the end, it all goes into a long of the guy going, I just want to say I've been waiting for this moment. And then there's another me in there yelling stuff out and the band sort of going crazier. It just seemed like a really good track to end the album on. It's one of my favorite tracks on the album. I always really love the first track and the last track, but they're usually the ones. So I really love Arcadia. I really love the way this song finishes the album. You know, I don't want my songs to tell people too much. I don't want to tell them this is what it's about. It has to be this or that. It's just a thing for you to enjoy and make of it what you will. Get into deep analysis about what the lyrics are or just let them all wash over. And it doesn't really matter. As long as you enjoy it, that's all that really matters. Jupiter rising 
time ago Angels are rising He sent them away He sent them away He sent them away He sent them away Long time ago The serpent was cut down They took him away They took him away They took him away They took him away, took him away. And now I will Let's at least talk sonically. I won't make you dissect the meaning. So the very beginning, which I thought was keyboard, but I'm now you're making me think that this is one of these medieval instruments that you were mentioning. What is that sound at the very beginning? I had this idea that a lot of the songs have this little prelude. I always really like that thing where you go and see an orchestra and you're sitting there and they all come on and go, oh. And they sort of get in the mood. They sometimes play little bits and pieces and they're tuning up. A lot of the songs have that. I can't remember. I think it's a bit of organ and a bit of cello. And I think it's treated a little bit. It's got a bit of sort of reverb or something on it. So were some of these preludes recorded separately and then... Especially a song like that where there's a count-in where the drums start. And then I recorded the song with me playing acoustic guitar and the drummer. We put all the songs I wrote on my own. Because you'll notice half the songs I wrote on my own and the other half were written with the other guys, not the lyrics, but the pieces of music. Which category is this in? This is one I wrote on my own. So the way that would have worked, I would say to the engineer, put these guys, like give them a sort of minute 30 before the drums kick in. And I'll say to you guys, okay, do something in that key. And usually the very first thing they did, sometimes we might go back and do it again or augment it. Usually the first thing they did 
that was it. And that's why it feels so fresh. And most of the takes are, that's it. That was the first take. So the guys would have improvised the little intro. And then when the drums go, they're into the song. Everything was like first, second, at the very most third take. So I didn't really have much time for third takes. It was usually had to be the first or second take. And that's what I'm trying to do there is keep the freshness of it. And people who don't know it properly are still kind of working stuff out and sort of excited and just hanging on, not really knowing exactly who's going to come next. I find a real useful tension in that. Reacting against that sort of music from the 80s, suddenly everybody became obsessed with all this perfection. I'm reacting against that. Wonderful players make wonderful mistakes. They, when they're not exactly sure, sometimes they do things they wouldn't have normally done that they may not in that very second think is good listening back to it, and you have a whole load of those moments all over a song, that's the stuff I love, that meandering, like nature. You know, sometimes a tree's growing, it might just for some reason stop, or it might stop and bend around another thing that's gone through it, and everything's tangling. You can't tell what everything is. That's what I wanted to create with this music, a dense undergrowth of things tinkling and plucking and thrumming away behind all the music. I want spontaneity and musicianship. I don't want intervention with computers. But you have to at least decide if you're going to do like a live take with the whole band, right? Or you say this is live with the two of you and then each person still overdubbed, still spontaneously. So you could try different instruments or have the same person do multiple passes. And The ones that were spontaneously composed, either Gareth or Roger had a little line that then we would all work on or we would start with percussion. So we'd all just sit around with one percussion device and one guy will go boom. And I go, another guy, ding, boom, ding. And then we come back at that and have another. Now I'm going to use this percussive instrument. I'm going to have this thing. I'm going to have this. And while the boom is going, we overdub that. We build up a kind of a background and then we'd pick up instruments. We'd get on sometimes regular like guitars and pianos and a lot of bass guitar. Roger and Gareth were sort of, a lot of those, they were playing um, instruments like a Turkish kumbus, which is this huge, great banjo-looking thing, and they were playing ouds. Do you know what the slide in this song is, in the nice, that really pretty thing in the chorus that's sliding around? Is that an oud or is that a... I think that's our um, steel guitar played with a slide. I didn't know if you could play an oud with a slide. I've never. <laughs> there's hurdy-gurdy. There's hammered dulcimer and lap dulcimer. There's a lot of cello. A lot of the attitude on this record is cello. And Roger wasn't a trained cello player, but he taught himself to play. Like, I guess he taught himself everything. And he really has interesting ideas of what to do with it. He's, he doesn't approach it like a cello player. He approaches like a musician who's learned to play this instrument so he can do whatever he likes. So he's completely open. And some of the stuff that sounds like violin is actually him playing it right up the neck. And cello just has this marvelous gravitas. If you have a song and you stick a fucking cello in it, suddenly you, the song has so much more weight and resonance. It's like sort of having a high court judge give you a good um, rap. It's sort of like this very authoritative instrument, very sort of ancient sounding, that deep, rich sound. It just provides an incredible thing in music. And he 
unlike a lot of cello players, they go, what do you want me to do? You know, where's the music? Roger would hear it and sort of often would lean towards these sort of diesel-ish and sort of Middle Eastern sort of sounding scales. They're not major or minor scales. They're kind of other scales. The other strange thing is if you recontextualize a cello and a guy on a flamenco guitar, but instead of playing them the way you normally do, they're sort of playing them in those scales, suddenly you don't think of them as a cello and a flamenco guitar. They suddenly have this whole other, for want of a better word, ethnic sort of feeling. You know, I was sort of trying to allude to all this Indians, the Hindus, you know, hash-hish and biblical days and my past lives as maybe a riding a camel in the desert. You know, I don't fucking know, but it's sort of like when you use those instruments and use them in with the way we're using them, it suggests so many things. It doesn't hit you over the head and go, this is what it is. It's sort of got this druggy, ancient, biblical just this lovely thing that I love that's so far away from some vocal-tuned, meaningless boy band doing, oh, girl, I love you. It's like I'm taking that as the absolute antichrist of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to give you really meaty music that every second of it is packed with instrumental goodness of lots of weird things all burrowing away and working away. It's like when you said, what is that sound? I'm not even sure. I have willingly forgotten what it all is. I don't want to listen to it and go, oh, that's that and that. I want to hear it. I want to smoke a joint. I want it to wash over me like an impossible tangle of sound. So how did you prevent whoever was mixing it from cleaning it up? Because you very rarely hear a cello that's this kind of buried under the acoustic so that when you have the bop, 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 like it sounds like the band. It doesn't sound like ELO where the cello and the strings parts, you know, really pop out. We have an American guy from Washington State. It's important that he's American because of his attitude. And I made him co-producer. So when I do the vocals or whatever's happening, he's so the record is his and he loves it and he knows what I'm after. He understands what it is. And because there's no pressure, like in the old days, that might be all well and good, but someone might be ringing up and say, you better fucking have a hit here. This guy knows we can just do whatever we like because I've paid for it. And I'm paying him to make this wild, woolly, unprofessional, tangled up, fucked up record. And he knows that. And when it's in his hands, it always comes back. And I go, ah. I mean, the rough mixes are good when we finish. And then he takes it away and does his thing. And then what comes back. I went round to a guy's place the other night, had a huge stereo. And I was just in awe of what this guy was doing. I think he's the best engineer and producer I've ever worked with, bar none. To me, he's as good as Bob Clearmountain. You know, when we were getting the record mastered, the mastering guy around and said, who the fuck is engineering this stuff? It's incredible. Say his name again. His name's Andrew Beck. He came out here, I think about 15 years ago, and he's been honing his craft, honing his craft, and I got really fucking lucky. And he helped me subvert the musicians. The musicians got sick of me saying, can you be like, don't resolve. No, just jam. And you don't have to keep playing. You can stop and start. And we like that mistake. We're going to keep it. He jumped in um, something about the way he, this American, so the way he would talk like, no, I don't fucking do that. You know, that doesn't sound good. Do it again. You know, or, or no, that's it. He has a sort of an authority of his own. So he was really useful. Everybody on this record, I got really lucky. Every one of them, the, for the drummer, 
Gareth on the guitar and Roger on the keyboards and all the instruments plays and Andrew all, in my opinion, at the top of their game and ready to use all the experience they've gathered over everyone with a sort of a, a 40-year career. They're all ready to listen to my ideas to sort of radicalize your playing. I certainly don't want dissonance. I don't like noise for noise's sake. Sometimes a little bit of noise is useful, but make it weirder. I'm looking for weirdness. Satanic Majesty's Request. I read once Mick Jagger said, not so long ago, he said that was his favorite Stones album and the review went, huh? And he went, (laughs) yeah, I guess I just like psychedelic music. I want something like that. I want something, just music for the sake of music before all that other stuff came into it, when you could just to do it seemed like you could do whatever you liked but never neglecting melody and not just sort of experimentation for its own sake but to provide entertainment were there specific hits for instance like there's this i wrote pink floyd organ where it goes pop long time ago where i could see that might be the kind of thing that you would have conducted or like you wanted something there or was this just entirely like what they were coming up with? Sometimes I would say, I want a but, and they would do a but. And other times I would go, I'm not really sure what this track would have. And he might go in there and go, I'm going to go but. And then when I heard it, I went, yeah, that's what I wanted. And sometimes the other players would give other players ideas. Often when I was in there working on my bits, they would be sitting in there furiously fiddling around with things, getting things ready. In fact, Roger and Gareth would always be sitting there whenever I was singing, when I was doing a rough vocal or doing the guitars. Once we got the guitar down, I'd do a proper acoustic guitar on a double track. They'd be sitting there figuring all out, playing and playing cellos. And you see that on the sleeve. A lot of it is some people sitting around playing things because there wasn't a lot of time. First of all, I was paying for it out of my own pocket and I'm not particularly wealthy. So it costs a lot of money. Can't cut a few of those 23 songs. We got we got to can't compromise that. You got to make sure the whole thing is there. Yeah. Normally, when you finish a song or when someone's done a really good take, everybody sits around and basks in the glory of it and shakes each other's hand. I had no time for that. The guy would be walking in from doing the last little overdub on a track. And as he walked in, I'd go to Andrew, right, next track. We would just listen to that one back and then the next track will come up and we'd be straight into it, working day and night without even lunch breaks, just like me pushing them on all the time in a, in a colossal, using up so much energy to do that. I was exhausted by the end of the day because I'm normally a kind of a dreamy sort of guy and I'm standing there looking at a cloud going, wow. But with this, I had to focus all day long just keep everybody motivated and going along really hard because those 23 songs were recorded pretty quickly, maybe within two weeks with it all added up. Can I ask you just about the last portion of this, which I'm kind of surprised given what you're saying, that there's not more (laughs) stuffed in this party that's going on at the end. There's a lot of vocals, and I was thinking those were all you, but you're saying that you're just the couple most prominent ones, but it's the full band. We have a little choir who sang on that song, and then I'm singing on it too, but then later on I do a sort of a scat track, you know, like, yeah, baby, oh, 
on, tell them the truth, mama, bring it on home. Was that first take on that? Because that's the kind of thing that if you're not exactly in the mood for that or there's not the proper atmosphere, like it's really hard to sort of create that out of nothing. I fucking get myself in the mood <laughs> I have to be in. I do. If I have to sing a soft, sad song, I'll go sure, in there. Sure. That's why it's the Hall of Counterfeits. That's why it is because it's all characters. You were saying that you're. It's all characters. It's all. It's all like if you're an actor, you know, you might be filming at one scene. You're sitting at home with your ma and your pa and your kids, and then the next seat you're out in the street gunning down the, the sheriff. That's how it is making an album. One minute you're this, the next minute you're that. It's all this wonderful sort of thing of trying to, instead of getting an album of me, a double album of this is what Steve Kilby thinks about politics and world health. and That would be the new, the new Van Morrison. That's not you. Yes, no. <laughs> I'm nothing to do with any of that. I'm a singer who dreams up songs. And then on this album, more than ever before, I have dreamt up different voices to sing the songs in from the disgruntled Roman slave of bound in servitude who's singing in that old nasty old voice to the sort of the proto hippie who lived 3000 years ago in ancient greece going arcadia that's my version of oh girl i'll never leave you my love song is to a pastoral ideal in ancient greece arcadia and then i become myself you know in some of the songs it kind of is me with my voice and what you'd expect the sort of things for me to say and then other songs i become as I sang to a guy today, I became in that song, Amorous Plethora, I'm like an ancient gigolo talking about all the girls he has stashed around the ancient world. You know, in another one, I'm a traveler who's lost, crying out. And in another one, I'm some cynical, you know, everything's for sale. or something. this cynical character. It's all just aspects of me and aspects of everyone and aspects of humanity. I really feel in rock and roll, the ancient world just is not explored enough. Why not? Rock and roll with its screaming guitars and pounding drums and wild singers, rock and roll is perfectly set up to explore the ancient world. But what do we sing about? We sing about, I got a baby driving the car. We're going to drink whiskey and, you know, like all that sort of shit. Why not sing about fucking, you know, the Phoenicians? I like the fact that this character seems upset that the serpent in Eden was cut down. They took him away. That's a complaining sort of line. I did want to ask you just about that shift in tone between that part to the waiting for this moment, that the, the whole thing before has been a very coherent, kind of wistful thing about the Garden of Eden, and now we're in the present, and it's going to be very intense. Is that just purely a matter of mood, or is there some narrative story there? Say I find the whole thing of the Garden, of, and I do, and I've written about it, and I've actually wrote a pamphlet, Eden and Adam and Eve and the serpent and Jehovah are obsessions of mine that I return to over and over and over and over. But I don't have anything scholarly to say. I'm not trying to say this really happened. I'm certainly not saying this didn't happen. I'm just going this wonderful story with these wonderful characters. And now I've got a song about it. And that's the thing about a song. It doesn't have to preface itself with anything. It's like, if you listen to the lyrics, you'll hear, notice it's about Eden and Jupiter is, of course, Jehovah, who is the same guy. Jehovah's just Jupiter. He's just Zeus. He's an old, angry, you know, and he's jealous. And he's sort of, if you don't like him, he'll, you could end up punished. And if you like him, he could raise you up. I call him Jupiter in that song, but it's obviously about him and 
this incredible notion of this Garden of Eden. Another thing that I always think about, and I still want to get this idea in songs, is when I was a kid, the Jehovah's Witnesses had come around and they'd give you these pamphlets and they were often terrible, like things falling out of the sky and volcano and people screaming for eternity. But every now and then there'd be like a drawing of their idea of heaven and there's like this beautiful garden and people are walking across the lawns with their arms around lions and leopards and people are feeding zebras and there's black people and white people and Chinese people and everybody's all there and they're all happy and everything's beautiful. I love that idea as well. All of these sort of biblical things, obviously I'm Dylan and, and Nick Cave and lots of other people mine the Bible. You know, even Bruce Springsteen's got mansions of glory and it's a great place. And because it's a song, if I was to write an article about it, I saw, I guess people will go, well, what do you think about it yourself? How do you interpret all that? But there are no questions asked of singers. You can sing anything you like in a song and nobody goes, well, what does that mean? It's like, it's a song. It's a lie. It's true. It's partially true. It's complete fantasy. It's whatever you want. And the singer never has to ever justify it. Well, it still has to make emotional sense that the fact that you have something of you know, this wistful tone and then it gets very direct and we're talking about this moment, you know, tonight, tonight, tonight. You know, there's so many songs that's sort of a rock and roll thing of like grasping this moment right now, right here, right now, you know, and this is a very effective version of that. Yeah, I was just asking you sort of how those two ideas fit together in your mind, grasping the present versus. I like the idea which is on the same lines. I like the idea, and some people were really good at this. I'm thinking the Bee Gees and Scylla Black and David Bowie too. The song starts off in this soft kind of, ah, and then when it hits the important bit, the voice goes really trebly and shrill. Like, so Scylla Black have a song, you're my world, you're everything. And then suddenly she goes, if our love ceases to be. And suddenly, you're taken from this intimate, soft, and suddenly you feel the urgency. And that's what Mick Jagger was really good at, if nothing else. He seemed, when I was a kid and watching him on TV, he seemed urgent. Whatever he was saying, it was really important and urgent, and he seemed really important that he had to say it. And the BGs as well, they can have these really soft voices and suddenly, good morning, Mr. Sunshine. And then, lonely days lonely night. So with this song, I'm trying to get that where it goes from calm and soft and reassuring. Suddenly the singer becomes a bit agitated. The serpent gets cut down and taken away. And as you said, he's sort of upset about that or he's excited about it at least. Before we move on, we're going to do some sponsor messages. I'm thinking that since you're listening to this, you love podcasts. And you're going to find a ton of binge-worthy podcasts, including ours, on Amazon Music. They've got more than 10 million free podcast episodes to listen to. But of course, Amazon Music is not just for listening to podcasts. They have thousands of music stations and top playlists to stream for free. And no matter what you're listening to, you can go hands-free with Alexa. You do not want to listen to ads with your music. And Amazon Music Unlimited has over 75 million songs, plus podcasts, music videos, and more. With Amazon Music Unlimited, you can listen to any song anywhere offline with unlimited skips. So really, stop trying to just use YouTube as your on-demand jukebox. You're going to appreciate being able to use Alexa to just ask for the song you want, ask for the artist you want. 
I feel I'm able to trust the Amazon playlist to take me through, say, a jog when I don't want to be messing around with the device. If you've never tried Amazon Music Unlimited, now is a great time. For a limited time, new customers can try Amazon Music Unlimited free for 30 days. No credit card required. Just go to Amazon.com slash N-E-M-P-O-D. That's Amazon.com slash N-E-M-P-O-D to try Amazon Music Unlimited free for 30 days. Amazon.com slash N-E-M-P-O-D. The service renews automatically. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. I also want to tell you more about the Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower. Nebbia originated in Mexico City where water shortages are a big problem, and they came to Silicon Valley to raise money, getting Tim Cook from Apple as their first investor. Nebbia by Moen was developed by former Tesla, Apple, and NASA engineers to create a superior shower experience while saving water. And they've succeeded. This product is responsible for having saved over 175 million gallons of water to date, while at the same time creating a real spa-like experience that provides twice as much coverage as your shower currently. It is very effective at rinsing, even though it's using only about half the water. It does this by using atomizing spray nozzles that produce smaller, faster droplets than standard showers. Finally, the installation. Super easy. Probably took around 15 minutes. You don't need anybody's help. You don't have to call a plumber. They provide clear directions. There's video you can look at. It really walks you through it. You can choose which finish, and Nebbia offers beautiful, sustainable accessories to match your finish, like a shower shelf, which replaced my old shower caddy. It's a much more elegant solution to store your shower products. And like Nebbia by Moen, it's easy to install. It just takes a few minutes, and combined with the shower head, it really elevates, it transforms the shower space. You can get 15% off all Nebbia products right now. Go to nebbia.com slash N-E-M, take a look. Use the coupon code NEM when checking out. That's nebbia.com slash NEM. So let's see how some of this songwriting theory applies to a different project going back just a few years to the last church album, 2017, Man, Woman, Life, Death, Infinity. We're going to talk about the opening track from that, Another Century. Can you say a little about where you were at with that album before we hear it? I can tell you Another Century was written by me on an Omnichord. When you play guitar or piano... It's very hard to break away from the way you think all the chords should go together. Mm -hmm. Or some chords are harder to play than others. And some just, for some reason, after a while, you get a sort of a block between really exploring all the things you could do. And you tend to do things you've always done. And there's this omnichord and all the chords are just buttons. So if you want A major, A minor, or A7, it's just a button on a machine. There's nothing, you don't have to learn to play it, or you don't have to be troubled to play it, or you don't have to. And you can just rapidly see how things go together. So, uh, 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 and I wrote this piece of music on an omnichord. Is that actually what we're hearing at the beginning? or That string sound, that's it, souped up a little. Sure. It probably doesn't come out of the box sounding quite like that. It's probably got a load of apps. Put a nice reverb on a, a crummy analog string, then it'll sound okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would probably have reverb, delay, and some kind of modulation, some kind of flangey sort of thing, making it so it becomes that beautiful wash. I've got a lot of candle for you. 
you know, I, I write the little piece and we record that. And then everybody, I pick up the bass and the guitarist picked up the guitar and the drummer plays along. And we sort of, we had a lot of trouble with that one because I really had, I wanted to be like a French song for what of a better word. I wanted a really ultra romantic, like a song that could be in a French movie or something. I wanted this sound a bit like Je t'aime et moi non plus by Serge Gainsbourg and, and Jane Burke. It's like this classical organ, this really beautifully creamy organ, and this couple sort of having this love dialogue in French. And it's got this really dreamy Euro. I wanted the song to be kind of like that. So we had a bit of a struggle to get it like that. And we actually had a few real arguments over it when I went out one day and I come back and everybody had not done it like that. And when they played it to me, I exploded and I was really, I really lost it. And I think someone stormed off. In fact, I had made a pact with myself to not push this album as we're working on it, to not have a disproportionate voice to let the other guys have as much say as me. And I was still doing pretty well with that. And then I, I went upstairs to work on a vocal of another track and I came downstairs and they'd made it into this very plodding kind of thing. It probably would have been good if, like, I only feel like that because it didn't have the French Euro romantic thing anymore. It sort of becomes something else. And I sort of exploded when I heard it. When no, that's not the fucking way to be wife. I go, who the fuck has done this? What is that? I, and I can't figure out what's doing it. There's something there was so offensive. It was part of the Frenchness. Like, this is one of your funkier bass parts. It's just got a really nice feel in some of it. Is that what you're referring to? Like, that French influence? Or is that something on top of that? Look, I don't even know why I'm saying French. <laughs> I just had this sonic place. There was this feeling I wanted the song to convey. For want of a better word, sort of sexy, languid. Once again, that song does that thing as well. It takes off in the chorus where it goes, how could this happen to me? It goes up into that sort of nasally, throaty voice after it's been sort of down. That's another one that does that. I haven't been doing that all of my career. If you listen to early church songs, that hardly ever happens. It's normally the voice in the verse is the same as the voice in the chorus, which was always sort of me. And now I'm not trying to sing like me. But as I'm saying, whatever they did with it, it was probably really good. But when I came back, I just lost the plot because that song is my baby off that album. That's the song I love the most. And, and I think a song that I'd be proud to put up alongside any other church song. It's a really nice, cool song. And then when it came to mixing, it was the same thing. Different people tried different mixes. Ah, and eventually, after a lot of work, we sort of got it. I think they understood because I can't always explain exactly, you know, I can get pretty technical, but sometimes whatever's going on eludes me. I can't figure out wh why, you know, I'm going, why the fuck, what's wrong with this? I can't figure it out. It just gone off the track. So it was all stripped out and it was all replayed with a different kind of ethos and then mixed and mixed and mixed. Eventually we got there. I'm really very happy with that track. The mixing on this sounds a little like the first song in that it's not really clear there's the two guitar personalities doing their, you know, sort of the, what a lot of people think of as the church. I know sort of as these later albums, when you're introducing more keyboards and just there seems to be a lot more subtlety and a lot more space being taken up either by the effects or by in this one, you've got just some little extra vocal things. I mean, not only the ahs that, you know, are the key thing in the chorus, but just things that I, I said somewhere extra angel inserted some, you know, somewhere in the middle of the chorus. Where an, another uh, floaty vocal comes in and then you can't quite t tell exactly what's going on or wh where all the sounds are. 
I have often noticed in listening to records how floaty, indistinct vocals that you can't quite tell what they are and what they're doing can really make something absolutely delicious sonically. I'm not a big fan of backing vocals right up, and I have a lot of trouble with whoever's singing with me. I go, get off the mic if you're going to do that. If you're going to go, ooh, I don't want to hear you going, ooh, I want to hear a voice miles away in reverb going, ooh, and then that's a different thing. I'm very conscious of and have brought this into the church all the time. I call it silvery. I go, I want silvery vocals. I want them to be like a sheen. I don't really want to hear what it's saying. I just want it to be a suggestion of voices. It's like my voice is up front saying what I want to say, and these voices should be, you shouldn't even know if they're voices, and sometimes they're half voices and half guitars and sort of ambience and stuff. It's all kind of mixed up, and it all provides this dreamy feeling that you can't really tell what's going on. Yeah, I will link folks to, I was just listening to a version live on KEXP, which I guess is after Peter was already out of the band. So there's still four of you. I think he might not have turned up that day as he was doing. Oh, okay. So he just wasn't wasn't there at, at that moment. But Tim is doing some background vocals and uh, maybe Jeffrey or so, somebody else is singing a little, but it's a little, you can't hide it the way that you're saying you would like to. <laughs> So it's still, you know, you sound nice together, but it's not supposed to be the Everly Brothers, you know, so it inevitably loses something in not having. No, you're right. It's difference between a play and a film, you know, like in a, in a film, you can do anything you like and in a play, you can't. And it's the same like between a record and guys in a little studio doing a live broadcast. It's like you obviously got to be limited by that. Again, feel free to just say, I don't want to explain any of this stuff, but the impression that I got from the overall meaning to the song, was that it's a very positive kind of self-knowledge is hard. We need each other's help in you're feeling bad about yourself. I'm, you know, this is this is kind of an uplifting message to someone, maybe not someone in particular, but is that at all what you were thinking? It's really even now, it's sort of impenetrable for me. That's what I sort of do so I can enjoy what I do. Once I've thought of an idea, once I've played something or got someone to play something, I force myself to forget all of that. So in a month's time or so, I can now approach this as freshly as I possibly can to assess what I've got. It's like I've worked out a problem in arithmetic, but I now have forgotten the workings. I've gotten the answer I want, but I don't know how I came to that conclusion. With that song, I'd have, I'd have to say it was one of those. I wrote the words and I wanted it to do that soft and throaty vocal thing. But I just like the line the most something nice might have come of it. Even though he's saying that the music shows he's not really that worried about it. It's like, yeah, something nice might have come of it, but it's sort of life goes on. So, yeah, I'm not really sure. I don't think I can put any illumination on that one. It sounds like you're doing it so you can have a very simple rhyme, once or twice, something nice. But then because you continue the second line, no, 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 that's, that's not what I'm doing yet. We, they, I, you know, that's just to, in fact, that's when it changes what from, it changes keys back. It changes from minor back to major or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's like an afterthought, although it comes directly after that other. How could this happen to me once or twice, once or twice? And then the other changes his mind, the music changes. He goes, something nice might have come of a. And so 
He's relinquishing all that angst by saying that and sort of shrugging his shoulders. Okay, so you're still thinking of this as a character, just not one that is painted in a specific dramatic scene. Or, or when, if I say he, I mean me, that me who is no longer me. The guy four years ago who wrote that song in that studio, in that season, doing whatever he was doing, I look back on that guy now and going, this is what I think that guy was trying to do. Yes, I have a good insight into it, but as I say, a lot of things have happened, plus I willfully forget everything. I try and willfully forget the chords of songs I no longer need to play, so I don't hear them as C, A, you know, it's like, I try and forget what the instruments are, for, try and forget it. So once again, I can re-experience the music as freshly as possible. That's how I know what I'm doing. Otherwise, I need to know what I'm doing. I need to be able to review what I've done. And I don't want to hear it through going, oh, this and I did this and that was that. Nice use of reverb. I want it to hear it the way you'll hear it. You're revealing the secret of being prolific because... I mean, I'm looking at my own songwriting and like, well, I've already written thematically about this thing. I've already used that chord progression before. I don't want to do another song that's too close to that. If I just sit down, you know, a lot of times it just, it's hard once you've written a couple hundred songs to like, but if you have that approach that you're describing, it's just washed away and something new, you know, it's really becomes more of the moment and not just like a page in your diary where it has to have some overall coherence in your life or something. You've hit the nail on the head. And I'll tell you something else. I am not hung up on chord progressions. Not all of my songs, some of them have. Some have been chord progressions I put vocals over. And some of them haven't. Some have been spontaneous chord progressions or some of them are implied chord progressions that sort of the instruments imply what the chords will be. But I am not hung up. If someone said to me, you have to make a whole album and all you can use is C, A minor, F and G, I'd say, fine, let's do it. I can use those four chords for a whole album and nobody would ever know they were the, that's all it ever was. However, when I first started writing songs, I didn't understand and I'd try and play my songs to friends, the songs I'd try and write. I thought you had to have all the most weird and exotic chords, like chords no one ever heard of. And no, it isn't. The best songs are C, A minor, F, and G. Not necessarily in that order. It's part of the way that you can avoid those traps is by just writing melody and bass and say, hey guys, jam over this. I've got the framework. It's going to be a song. You said with this one, you came in with the Omnichord chords already worked out. I guess just to ask you sort of more general how the Latter-day Church stuff was put together. I understand there was a lot of jamming in the studio. But what does that mean? What would you come in with? Would you have anything? No. And in fact, even that chord progression was written in the studio on the Omnichord. The Omnichord sitting there, I sit down, I go, do it a few times round. You don't go, hey, you guys, listen. You just sit there quietly playing it. And hopefully, sooner or later, someone goes, hey, what's that? And you go, yeah, you like that? And they go, yeah, what is that? And then they pick up an acoustic guitar. And then you realize how it sort of sounds in real time. The guy gets on the drums and sort of plays along a bit and you go, wow, this could really be something. Things like that. And then just completely like not having anything at all. This would sometimes happen in rehearsal room before we made the record. And sometimes it would happen actually in the studio. And sometimes it'd be half and half. We'd go, well, we've got 10 things we've already prepared. That all started off with everybody picking up an instrument and just go, and then sooner or later it might start to coalesce. 
And that's where my job comes in. I'm the guy looking for a song I can sing over. And when I start to hear it, suddenly I go, stop. Okay, let's just keep doing this. And then we do that for a while and we go, we need some more chords or we need another sort of feeling or something. And when we we look around for it. But a lot of our songs just started with players jamming. It's funny, the word jamming has this, if I went into somebody and said, we have composed this work, it sounds so much more like so much work and thought other than saying we jammed it. You know, and people go, oh, it's just a fucking jam. But we jammed, we composed, we put things together. So in different combinations, sometimes people not playing their usual instrument, sometimes we all changing instruments. And when we find someone I want to sing, I would go, okay, this is it. We're going to work on this now. And then we'll take that aside and work on it for a while and record a version. So was that around like late 90s where that kind of cemented, like that became the... No, it started in um, 1985 when we recorded Hey Day. Up until then, I had kind of written all of the songs and I would demo them and my demos became kind of really exact, like all these interlocking guitars and bass and everything playing like really all kind of thought out because I'd figured it all out and played it all at home. And then on seance, that really hit a bit of an idea where everybody was just imitating my demo and I couldn't see that that's what was happening. And so I had a sterile feeling. And so to revolt against that kind of music composed like that, I said, why don't we, and everybody's very agreeable, this, why don't we all write the music together? Because we already had a couple of those on the Blurred Crusade, songs where we'd kind of jammed a bit. And I thought it'd be a good idea just to jam. And we just jammed in the studio and then the producer turned up one day and we took those jams into the studio, recorded them, and then I sang over the top often with no idea what was going to sing until it had been recorded. In fact, a really stupid way I was working with a church, I still do, is I don't have anything until the day someone goes, all right, you're on at 10 o'clock today, and at 9 o'clock I'm sitting in the garden of the studio smoking a joint and writing the words and figuring out the song because only the pressure that I had to do it imminently I sort of go, like, I'd be at home and go, wow, I've got to write something for that instrumental. And then another voice would go, oh, why worry about it? It's still a week away. You know, and then I really got to do something that song. I don't worry about it. It's tomorrow morning. And then suddenly you're there and the engineer's in there doing it, going, we're going to do this song now. And that's you go, wow, I've got to come up with something. And then the sheer pressure of having to come up with something, you come up with something and you never doubt yourself. You never go, oh my God, am I going to come up with something? You go, I'm going to fucking come up with something. I just have to, you know, just like an athlete, you know, I'm going to run this course and jump over all the hurdles. I have to go in there and go, yes, I will come up with something. And most of the time, not always, but most of the time, it's usually I'm happy with it. Well, let's turn the clock back several more notches. I want to make sure we touched on this is a the big anniversary for Of Skins and Hearts, the first album, 1981. Is This Where You Live is the song that I picked off that, which I'm sure is not the one that you're typically asked to talk about, but it got to have the slow part and the fast part. So I was, you know, if we're going to have something to represent the old era, this sprawling seven and a half minute thing seemed like a good choice to me. Do you want to say a little about it before they hear that seven and a half minutes? This song was a long time coming. And I was in London having a holiday because I'm English and I haven't been back to England as an adult. And I was there in 1978. and trying to get myself absorbed. And I wasn't feeling very at home there and I wasn't really feeling at home in Australia. I was also thinking about the idea sometimes when you meet a lady 
somewhere. If they say, come back to my place, you have no idea what that place will be. And sometimes you're expecting a palace and you get a pigsty and other times you're expecting a tent and it's a villa. So trying to get the maximum bang from the buck of the phrase, is this where you live? Also asking myself, where do I live? Where am I supposed to live? It's also mixed up, but it's none of it, but it isn't any of those either. It's just like what it could be because I'm going for maximum ambiguity. Everything I try to do, I'm trying to get maximum, like with one phrase, I can allude to 20 things. I was lucky one day to be tuning the bass and go boom, boom, you know, the harmony. And I went, wow, that could be a song. And then I didn't have any money and I wandered into a music shop and they had this latest instrument, a Roland vocoder. And there are a lot of people think vocoding is when you have this one, you could do that. But what it also had, and this is 1980, and this is before samplers and before I thought it was possible to do something like this, it had male and female voices. And I stood in the shop and I put my finger on the low D and it went, infinite sustain. It's not like you're doing it yourself. It's like, Imagine if I had to record that, you know, <laughs> no, you've got an infinite voice, oh, and then you can add in other voices and sort of get that as you're moving away from the baritone tone. And then the females right up to go, oh, all with this slightly groovy analog clunkiness, just like the Mellotron had that clunkiness because of the tapes. And you still got used to it and it became a thing of itself the way it sort of when the tapes would. And the players had to play knowing the tape would run out and they had to stop because they didn't have infinite sustain. This was kind of clunky and it had some cool things. It had chorus and so your voice would be going, ah, and a whole load of them. And then when you start suspending the chord, when the other note on the D starts sometimes hitting a G and the whole thing would sort of lift up. So I heard that and when we made the album, I was allowed to hire in instruments and I just went, get me a fucking Roland vocoder. And they brought it in. I was just like, <gasps> to me, it was like having an Aston Martin to drive for a day. This thing that I've been in a music shop getting dirty looks for, because the guys look at me and go, you can't fucking afford that. What are you playing it for? I'm saying, oh, and then the song's starting on my head. I, they finally delivered it. I had it for a few days and it's all over the Blurred Crusade. I actually, by then I had, got enough royalties i fucking bought myself one it's all over the blur crusade you're talking about that vocal thing before if you listen to blur crusade there's these choruses that have sort of so much more than just guitar but it's really hard to tell what it is it's very subtle use of vocoder backing everything up so that when the lead line in when your mind goes down the very last time it does it right at the end of the song there's but it's so miles away and reverby and sort of EQ'd. It's like, logically speaking, someone listening to it wouldn't think what it was. The feeling would be this mysteriously uplifting feeling that only a real musician would go, oh, they've doubled the guitar line with a very distant sort of vocal sound. Most people would just be like, wow, that's really nice. So there I am, is this where you live? And I once again, I have this, always have this desire to create a sprawling masterpiece. If I couldn't recreate a sprawling masterpiece album, 
then I'd have a sprawling masterpiece of a song. And not only that, but this song is really important to me. I wrote about this in my book. It was a turning point in my life. Up until age 25, I had played a million gigs playing songs and no one had ever really liked it or listened. Nothing positive had ever really come of it. And I was running on blind faith. And now I had this band, The Church, and we were opening for all these pub rock bands back in 1980, like Chisel and The Radiators and My Sex and all of, all of these bands. We were the opening band. And the audience were like, oh, who the fuck is this? Anyway, this one night, we did Is This Where You Live? We didn't even have the vocoder. This is before we got in the studio. It was just the bass just going boom, boom, and the guitars sort of making sounds. And I sort of stood there and I went, for the first time ever, the audience were listening. They were listening and going, and they noticed us, and they noticed the song, and they were engrossed. And there I was. I finally, I had found my voice. And not only that, I have found my look. And previous to this, I had been a sort of a chubby-ish public servant-looking guy. And suddenly, there I am, as angular as all fuck. I'm really thin and angular. And I sort of look like a disdainful English poet with sort of makeup on. And my band are all pretty good-looking guys. And suddenly, from out of nowhere, there was the church doing, is this where you live? And people are really fascinated by that. The bomb, bomb, and the spaciousness and the weird lyrics. So in pub rock land in 1980, when guys, oh, baby, you're going to rock and roll. <laughs> Suddenly it's a guy going, you know, fishnet girlish, the red one spa, holy ox, tracked in the dark, boom. And little guitars and go, this little things are starting to happen. It wasn't like in those days, bands weren't like that. If they had two guitarists, one was going, ah, 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 and the other one's going, and the guy going, ah, has been turned right down, and the guy doing the solo has been mixed right up. The church weren't like that. We had two guitarists very much picking up on television and the birds. We, we weren't totally the first to have this, but we had two guitars who were sort of, and I even in the studio, it's amazing. I remember this when we were mixing some of these songs, our first album, I was actually having my thumb on the fader trying to push it up and the engineer would have his thumb on the other side of the fader trying to push it down on what he thought were the rhythm guitar tracks. He's going, the rhythm guitar's drowning out the lead guitar. I'm going, it's not the rhythm guitar. And that one isn't lead. They're two parts of a whole. And you don't take one right down. And we were actually sitting there looking at each other and I, re- I realised, this is absurd. We're having a thumb wrestle on a fader because <laughs> I want to get my music the way it is. And the guy's not letting me do it. Like, on the, he's pushing it back down. Anyway, so there we are, and we're playing that bit, and there's all that guitar atmospheric and those words. Who else would, in 1980, you know, you should have seen Australia in 1980. People didn't have songs with, like, deluxe locations just near completion. You know, they're not going to fucking have those lyrics. It's like, my baby, rock and roll. I'm a fighting man. I drink beer and fuck chicks. They're not having that suddenly appearing in the song as this sort of real estate jargon. You know, that's what I did. I, I, I would hear a great phrase. I was confident enough, like Dylan. I just take chunks of jargon. And when you recontextualize, I would have seen that sign walking along in Sydney. Coming soon, deluxe locations just near completion. As on a sign, you go, oh, yeah. I go walk along and I see that sign and I go, 
I'll have that. And then when I'm looking for the lyrics, these things I've thought about, you know, the things that I made mental notes of, they come up. And then when you recontextualize that in a song, and it's 1980 and everybody's, and then suddenly there's a guy going, deluxe locations just near completion. It's quite a nice little playing with the whole idea of what are lyrics? What is poetry? There were these guys who did a poetical hoax in Australia in the 1930s to show up how stupid this surrealistic magazine was by submitting all this, what they thought was bad poetry. And they were in the army the day they were doing it, and they were ripping huge chunks out of army manuals like, as long as the mosquito swamps are drained correctly. And in an army manual, that's one thing. Suddenly chuck that into the middle of a poem that was actually called encephalus, which is the name of a mosquito, but most people don't know that. But you hear that word encephalus. You know something good's not going, and suddenly he's chucking all these random bits of jargon. If you can do it properly, and Bowie shows this, and Dylan shows this, and I was doing it in my own way, although I probably might not have described it to you had you met me in 1980, I probably wouldn't have been able to say all this. I was just doing it sort of instinctively, and now I look back on it, and I can sort of see how you would describe this stuff. Just like someone writes a book and then a grammatician can sort of pull that all apart and and tell you exactly what's going on there grammatically, how what everything is. I was sort of just recontextualizing chunks. And then in the middle of the song, it stops. And then it starts up again as a rocker, a sort of quite a frantic rocker, complete with a backwards guitar solo. So you know where we're coming from. Here's another name I 
lights don't help my youth All I own is on this list A danger and a myth Just because you mentioned this, you know, the vocals presenting this new style of what lyrics could be, why are they mixed so low <laughs> at this point? So that when the parts where you're singing high or when there's really nothing going on, like at the beginning where it's just bass, then like they do cut through. But a lot of it, like it's maybe it's just the mastering that really blows the drums up or. Well, you think of this, the closer the vocal is in the mix, when the singer's right up there singing in your ear until all of the shades of grey until he's a long way away like Mick Jagger going, I was bowling across again, but the music's almost drowning him out. So the guy who's singing up really close in your ear, I guess if you think that vocal is low, why I would have let it be low is we're establishing a certain distance, like quite literally this guy's not your friend, he's not, he's a stranger, he's not someone you know, he's not intimate with you, he's not up close singing these words in your ear, he's kind of back a bit and he's saying all this stuff to you with distance and attachment and the guitars sometimes might threaten to actually swamp him out and wipe him out so you can't even hear what he says and good, that's what it's all about. I don't know the lyrics to a lot of Rolling Stone songs, I never want to fucking know them. I like the fact that I don't know them, I like the fact that in rock and roll you know, my auntie Lou always go, you can't understand what he's saying. And I was like, good. You don't want to f- understand everything. It's just the feeling of it. You don't understand everything Shakespeare's saying either, for fuck's sake. But it washes all over you and you just take it in and, and then you get a really good result. My folk singer dad would say that about my recordings. And I actually listened to him. So now I like try to make everything like Beatles level up front because it's so much the focus is the lyrics, and I kind of want the lyrics to make sure they get through. You know what? <laughs> the Beatles are not always up front. Living is easy. He's a million miles away. Sure. You know? If it's a psychedelic thing, I completely get that. Especially something like this that's so hypnotic. The voices, a lot of times you have these mantras in these songs where you're repeating the same thing. You know, it really becomes a focus. I reckon when I come to think of it, Neil Young is sometimes, you might go, wow, he's really down in that mix. He came dancing across the water. And his, his voice, when the lead guitar comes in, it's much louder than his voice was. It's a sort of a tool, I guess, you have to establish. There's so much to singing and recording a, a vocalist. Where you sort of are in the song really says a lot about what you're doing. I would say a general axiom could be the closer you seem to be, the more sort of sincere you are. You're sort of saying something really warm and truthful and sincere or a real threat. 
I think Velvet Underground, I think that they, you know, sometimes his voice was kind of back a bit as well and sort of indistinguishable. And that adds to the sort of druggy, dazed, casual. It's like Dylan and Lou Reed, they're like, I'm so fucking casual. I don't care. I just want to do this and get out. I'm just going to fucking sing it, all right? Wherever I am, that's what it's going to be. And, you know, like, why lie, why lie, why lie, and then it's sort of fucked up and not in tune and distant. And that, for that occasion, is perfect. For another song, you want that up close, beautiful, enunciated voice where you can hear every last syllable and you can hear absolutely the, the softest breath. Sometimes that's appropriate. None of them are ever right or wrong. And someone says, all your songs, you should be able to hear them. I don't believe in that. I think the clarity of a vocal and where it sits in a mix is part of the palette. And sometimes, especially if you're singing kind of loud and stuff, it's to me, the louder I am, the further I probably want that loud singing in the mix. I don't want it, I don't want it up front. I don't want to be yelling in someone's face. I don't mind yelling at you from across the room, but I don't want to get right up in your face and yell at you. That's not pleasant. A very surprising thing for me is just how the vocal starts in this, that you've established this drone, but it's this oceanic lights are cleverly did. Like, it sounds like this could be a little 60s swing ditty sung over the edge of a tall building into a vast wasteland or something. Like, it's it's just a really fun, out of place way of starting that, where it could be oceanic lights are cleverly dim. You know, you could be through the poetry thing and just bash that that it's this is artsy, but it adds a level of, I don't know, irony or just makes it more fun. Look, I'm glad you're noticing these things. When you have a song, even a basic song, even a rock and roll band in 1990, and you have a song, there are so many parameters to alter and manipulate and change, so many decisions when it comes to every single part of that song, and all of them will have different subtle effects on the people listening. And if you can get a lot of them right and a lot of them appropriate, so there's sort of implied irony and implied sarcasm, but also implied warmth and implied confusion. It's never bang, 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 this is this confused. It's sort of like, what exactly is this guy? It means you can listen to the record over and over and over and over again because it's always ambiguous enough. You can never really get your fill of it. And I'm glad you're noticing those things. I've never even thought about that. When you say it, I see it. That was one thing I hadn't thought about was that I'm singing it like that. And I can see now looking at it, I can see how that was an important part of it. But I never, it didn't even cross my mind. The sort of most warm part of the song is this. You know, the nice chorus thing, it's sort of the most Robin Hitchcock soft boys like thing that I've ever heard out of the church, which I was looking at a live version from 1982. And it seemed like, I guess it was you, you were saying you were doing all those harmonies at the time, probably on for the recording. They definitely kind of chickened out when it came to the live third. They're going, ah, and they're not, they're not as committed to it. We weren't a band who was known for our vocals and backing vocals. And we didn't do an awful lot of work on that. In fact, there was sometimes a very grim, sarcastic jab at ourselves where we'd check into a hotel at 3 a.m. in the morning and someone would say, all right, everybody down to my room for a harmony rehearsal knowing that was the least likely thing that ever happened in the world <laughs> with the church actually have a harmony rehearsal where bands do that and sit around with acoustic guitar and have harmony rehearsals. That never happened. There was never even a live harmony rehearsal. It was just sort of like an open slather. Sometimes I'd sing where I wasn't supposed to and sometimes I wouldn't sing where I was supposed to and sometimes it was the same for them. It was very haphazard. 
it seemed to suddenly be all about the guitars and stuff and the vocals. So we're so cocky, we're not exactly going to get this right necessarily. I think that was the sort of, or we couldn't be bothered or we didn't realize it didn't seem to matter. We hadn't been able to adjust every single thing about ourselves and we were putting a lot more effort into the music than the vocal. Being a good singer was one of the last things on my agenda. You know, I wanted to be an interesting singer and I thought I could be interesting without necessarily being good. If you had to be very specific about exactly what pitch you're hitting, it wouldn't have the same character, definitely, this song. No, it was sort of relatively a sort of sing-speak, sort of talking-speak. It wasn't, ah! It was, ah, 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 ah. So my voice now is starting to fail me. Um, It's been a fantastic, really interesting interview. One of the best interviews I've done for years because you talked about the sort of thing I'm interested in. So we're just going to let folks go. I wanted to put something else. You know, this actually is kind of a pop song and the strings are put right out there in the way that you'd expect nicely arranged strings. Sydney Rococo, the title track to your 2018 solo album, Sydney Rococo. Do you want to say two words about that before we let him go? Yeah, this is proper strings sounding like strings. Nice, pretty chorus. <laughs> I wanted to have a song that sort of feels like it could be the theme of a James Bond. Like imagine if James Bond comes to Sydney and they made a movie called Sydney Rococo. I would like in some parallel universe this to be the theme song. You know, Sydney Rococo. <laughs> and then all that stuff at the end where the, ooh, you know, all the backing vocals. And, you know, it's like supposed to be as beautiful and as powerful as we could be with no irony or no nothing. It's like, We're trying to do a really perfect thematic kind of song here, like a cinematic kind of theme. So, yeah, I was very pleased with how this turned out. Uh, I think it's a a good song. All right. Thanks so much, Steve. See you later, mate. Another star falls as evening crawls In the wake of the sky No skyscraper lets you forget Then the sun shines down Blinds this town And you laugh every morning But every night you will regret Sing is the thing that disaster will bring. 
Wow, Steve was just a great and really verbose guest. Really one off my bucket list. If you enjoyed this, you might want to also listen to my interview with Marty Wilson Piper, the one-time guitarist for the church through most of their history. A very, very talented group. My next episode will be an interview with Chris Connolly, another very good, very smart guy, and Melvin Gibbs and Emma Jean Thackray. Make sure you are subscribed directly to this podcast. Look up Nakedly Examined Music on the podcast app of your choice. And if that podcast app of your choice is Apple Podcasts, please consider supporting the show. You can hear all the episodes ad-free and some bonus content just by clicking the button to subscribe. That subscription will actually get you access to the ad-free episodes and bonus content to all of my side podcasts. That is pretty much Pop, a culture podcast, Philosophy versus Improv, my new one that I'm very excited about. So I would love, love, love your support. If you don't use Apple, that's fine. You can go to patreon.com slash music and do it directly there. This has been a long episode. I will not draw it out any further. Hope you're having a wonderful week. See you next time. Until then, keep on musicking. This is Mark Litzmeyer signing off. <laughs>